0: This is an ABC podcast. Helen Fitzgerald is a best-selling fiction author of crime dramas and thrillers. One of her novels, The Cry, has been made into a major BBC drama. Helen grew up in Australia, but she's lived in Scotland for many years now, where she's worked in Glasgow as a criminal justice worker in some of Europe's toughest slums and in Glasgow's Barlini prison. And all of this has exposed her to the furthest extremes of human behaviour and psychology. But for her latest novel, Ash Mountain, Helen has drawn on her childhood memories of country Victoria, where she grew up in an impossibly large family. Hi, Helen. Hello. How are you doing? I'm well, thank you. I want to start with your early life, your early family life. Before your mum met your dad, he was already a widower with eight kids. What was going on in your dad's life before your mum met him?
1: Well, he was living in Shepparton and he was an engineer with the PNG at the time. So he, I think he was also on the council in Shepparton. So he was, you know, busy community guy, very Catholic. And was, um, his wife had died of breast cancer when she was 36 and he had eight children under the age of 12. So he was living in a little house in Collette Street in Shepparton. And I think the whole community of Shepperton kind of loved Dad. You know, he wor- he was working really, really hard. The kids were always impeccably turned out, polished shoes, homemade lunches, and he would stay up till 3am, you know, doing all of that to make sure that he'd get them off to school and, and so forth.
0: Your dad sounds like a remarkable and ingenious man. Tell me about the special house he made that could house all his children.
1: Yeah, well, he built two houses and everything all was always ingenious. Initially, when he was 18, he joined the Air Force and went off to war in 1945, but he had been a pilot before he could drive even. And when he got back to Australia, I think that sort of militariness was in him always. You know, Ria, my sister, was reminding me the other day that if you were ever sitting down and Dad walked past, he'd say, are you being useful? (laughs) And uh, I've sort of passed that on to my children. Are you being useful? And the answer (laughs) mostly is no, you know. (laughs) But he also had log books for everything. And in the house in in Colette Street, he had arranged that the beds in one of the big bedrooms at the back would sort of go up against the wall during the day so that the room could be used as a sort of playroom or living room and he put Venetian blinds over them. It was some ingenious way of making it look like they were windows, you know, so that the room changed function during the day. So he was always into house and home, hugely. He had telephones, you know, all over the place, and even one that he put in the cubby house right down the end of our block, which was like an acre away. And my little sister and I had a cubby house with a phone attached to the house, which we thought was really, really exciting. Right, a working phone, right. (laughs) Yeah, working phone, until he rang it the first time and said, Mum, could we have a sandwich and some accordion? She goes, no. (laughs) And we realised the phone was going to be completely useless. Right. So
0: it wasn't a room service line, in other words, for the cubby. It
1: wasn't a room service, no. Okay. Uh, Tell
0: tell me how your dad managed to win a round-the-world trip before he met your mum.
1: Oh, so talking about the Venetian blinds, he'd gone into a shop in Shepparton, and there was a big poster on the front saying that there was a competition run by the makers of Venetian blinds. Whoever could come up with the most ingenious use for Venetian blinds, which is kind of weird because I would have thought there's really, you know, you put them on windows. <laughs> but Dad said, ah, that, that if you basically had the most ingenious use, you would win a trip um, around the world, you know, going to, on a ship over to Italy and all around Europe and stuff. So he looked at that poster, he said, I'm going to win that. <laughs> and sure enough, he did, because he's probably the only person who used <laughs> Phoenician lines in an odd way, really. But, um, yeah, so he wins that trip. And his wife has just been diagnosed with breast cancer, actually, um. and they had a, a one-year-old little gay who was only a baby, the youngest, So there are photos of them. It was in, I think, a big Australian magazine, probably Women's Weekly or something. I remember the photograph of these beautiful eight children, absolutely impeccably dressed with hair. The boys with their hair slicked back with Brill cream. The girls with blonde curly hair, you know, and gorgeous shiny shoes and and all of that sitting on the um, steps of this cruise ship. And they went on that trip around Europe together and had an absolute blast. But sadly, when she got back, the cancer had come back, and, and she died not long after that.
0: So after his first wife died, was he taking on all the work of raising eight kids on his own?
1: He was, but there's a lot of loving family, and I think everybody in and also rallied around him because he was a, a really funny guy as well, funny and nice. You know, he was very charismatic. But, yeah, he was... He was So I would say maybe even manic, you know, in his energy levels and uh, just constantly doing, wanting to do jobs, you know, so he would never sit still. But I think looking back that the kids were often going around relatives as well, some of of them staying with other people. I think Gay stayed with her grandparents for quite a while in Melbourne and I think, you know, there was a risk that he wouldn't have been able to keep doing that forever. So falling in love with mum was a lucky thing.
0: Tell me how your mum met this charming and handsome but severely overtaxed widower trying to raise eight kids on his own.
1: So across the road from him, um, my auntie Irene lived with her husband and um, she invited her little sister, my mum, to dinner one day. Mum was at the time, um, I think she was teaching in Mathra or else she was in the Department of Defence. I can't remember which one. But she came to dinner at my uh, at her sister's house in Shepparton and this man came over for dinner with his oldest daughter, Mary Rose, who was 12, who was very lovely, mum said but a little intimidating. <laughs> and um, and mum really fancied him because he was a very handsome man. And he gave her a lift back to Melbourne. So they got along really well. And she said when she went back to Melbourne, she didn't stop thinking about him. And... Uh, just on a whim, one day uh, she decided to buy eight little Easter eggs. In fact, it was very mum because they were tiny little Easter eggs, you know, <laughs> the smallest probably that you could get. And she went around to um, dad's mum's house, my ma, in Camberwell in Melbourne, uh, with these eight Easter eggs and goes up to the door and knocks on the door and said, is Brian there, <laughs> you know? And Ma opened the door and said, I'll just get him is having a snooze, which is actually a nice thing that, you know, his mum was sort of gave him the afternoon off and had the eight kids while he had a sleep. So mum said this dopey guy with really messy hair, which is not at all my dad. My dad was always impeccably groomed himself with brill cream, you know, slicked back hair. Right, yes. Um, but when mum met him, he came to the door all dopey and she she said she, I'm not sure it was at that moment, but she fell in love with him at that moment and pretty much said she just threw herself at him. <laughs> so, so she fell head over heels in love with him. And I, I was telling her that story yesterday and she's like, oh, I've got to remember that story. I've got to keep thinking because she's in a she's in a rice village in Geelong now, in a care home. And is ha- And she said, because these are very bleak times and she was just really, you know, that memory is so vivid and she's told that story to us so many times. So she ends up as a stepmother to eight children under the age of 12, which is pretty daunting. So then
0: he had more kids with your mum, including you, of course. How many kids altogether are we talking about here?
1: So they had... They're eight and then they had another five. Yeah, pretty wow. much year after year after year. So that was the contraception story, you know, that they were incredibly Catholic and they just wouldn't have even thought of contraception. I was just, oh, my God, you silly people. And um, years and years later, you know, Dad cut to, you know, 40 years later, they gave up. the They just one day decided, I don't believe in any of that anymore. You're like, oh, what a shame he didn't think about that <laughs> at child too. you know. <laughs> Would have saved him so much hassle and stress. So, Helen, we're all yeah.
0: 13 in the house at the same time, or were you getting older and moving on?
1: Well, in Shepparton, when, you know, from when I was one to three, I'd say there was probably about nine of us. By the time I was born, some of the older kids had gone off to boarding school. Like, my oldest sister went to Geelong, and the two of the girls were at Windsor in Melbourne. I think there were scholarships and things, and they went off to boarding school. So, no, I think nine was the most. But I certainly never had a bedroom to myself until I left home. yeah. <laughs>
0: So does that mean you needed a newer and bigger house?
1: Yeah, when he married Mum, they moved to Kilmore and he built a bigger house because there was now 175 of us. <laughs> And um, it was one of those 70s brick houses, you know, with the veranda all the way around. And Dad put three bathrooms in it, which, you know, was huge for that time, very useful. And one of them was, there were eight girls and five boys. So one of them had an incinerator in it for sanitary <laughs> napkins, which at the time was pretty revolutionary. And I thought embarrassing and disgusting and... um all of our cousins used to come and say, what on earth is a fire burning in your in your toilet? But, uh, you know, we had a septic tank and if ever anything went wrong, we would be in big trouble. But he was ingenious. He was always doing things like that. We had backup plans for any kind of emergency, you know, gas lighting, all that sort of stuff. Was it a, was it a cheerful house to grow up in? It was. Uh, laughter was our thing. Actually, cheerful, you know, is under, you know, stating and it. it was huge... Laughter was the currency, you know. If we could make each other laugh, um, then you're on to a winner. There were always, you know, factions, I suppose, and a lot going on. And I think the way I coped with having so many people around was just I was always out of the house, which was easier to do, you know, in Kilmore, a little town where there was a lot of sport and a lot better weather than over here. You know, it's harder for my kids to do that. But I was never inside, really. So we didn't have that feeling of claustrophobia and being under each other's skin all the time. We were always all of us doing a lot of activities and a lot of other things.
0: You mentioned there he was a log book keeper. How much of a record keeper was your dad?
1: Oh, so he had a chook log book for the, you know, chook number one, (laughs) later book, and, you know, if we took turns to go down and fill out the chook log book, there were about 15 chickens, and he had a video log book in later days, you know, when you used to tape off the tally, and that was the only way you had um, movies that you could watch, and so he had a log book for that with about 20 videotapes that you'd cross out what you've just taped over and... So yeah, he was a little crazy like that. I'd say.
0: Given that you were in such a large family, a small army that was very obviously Catholic, was there still any of the old sectarianism
1: around in in that time when you were a kid? Oh yeah, I was just uh, watching Billy Connolly actually before talking to you about sectarianism because it's so it was so mirrored in. Kilmore. I mean, my memories of Kilmore. Um, we we lived in a street which was pretty much all. I didn't, we didn't realize at the time we were the only Catholics who moved into Church Street, and it was called Church Street because at the end of our street there was a Church of England church. The other end of the street was the state school, and we used to have to walk past the state school to get to the Catholic school. And um, actually, I, I was, I've written something recently saying that you know, as we walked past the state school the state school kids would yell Catholic dags dressed in rags. And I couldn't remember what it was, but they said, eating something out of bags. And so I'd put on Twitter, does anyone remember this? And they, and someone said, oh, yeah, no, it was maggots. We ate maggots out of bags. Right. He said, at least it was in Terelgan. Um So there was a lot of that, actually. My sister got stone thrown, on her, thrown at her on the way past the state school, going to the Catholic school. So looking back at amazing, actually, how much that sectarianism was, you know, mirrored in our little town in Kilmore. And funnily enough, you know, where I live now is a Terrace street, red sandstone terraces, and at the end of our street is a Church of Scotland. <laughs> and we are, although we're certainly not practicing, we don't, we're not at all religious, but the rest, it's pretty much a Protestant street. So we're still the only Catholics in huh. on the street.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and there's a the whole thing about whether you support Celtic and Rangers in Scotland too. One's the Protestant team. Oh one's the my Catholic. word,
1: there sure is. And that's been off the radar, like really, you know, refreshingly for quite a lot of years because Rangers was doing so badly. <laughs> but they won a big uh, game on the weekend. and it's all kicking off again I think all of that politics is just coming out again there's a lot going on here about independence in Scotland and Northern Ireland and so I think we're going to have a resurgence of all that stuff sadly
0: so in this town of Kilmore in Victoria which is what that's about an hour's drive north of Melbourne or thereabouts
1: yeah about an hour yeah
0: yeah how how much did the local boys boarding school loom over day-to-day life
1: Oh, I, um, looking back on it, I, that was my fear, was the borders. It was a town of about 1,000 at the time. When I left, it was about 2,000, but it was a small town. But it had Assumption College, um, the Morris Brothers School there, which was a big recruiting ground for Essendon football players, apart from anything. But as well as that, when I was growing up in the 80s there was a lot going on in terms of sex abuse scandals in the Catholic Church. There was a lot going on at the school, which is Googleable. Um, so you had all these boys who my impression as a little girl was that they were terrifying and horrible and I absolutely hated their guts, you know, and there would be times you wouldn't go down to the street. You would avoid it completely. Because they would chant at you and um, threaten you and chase you and all sorts of impregnate you, things like that. And so I I really hated the borders so much and I begged not to go to that school when it became co-ed. Just when I was getting to the point of sort of the fifth year, my second last year at school, they'd gone co-ed in those last two years. So there were a few girls at the school, but not many. And life was pretty tough for those girls. And I, I begged my mum when I was coming up to um, fifth form, please, please let me go to boarding school. So actually when I look back on it, I feel really bad because my mum hated the school too. Really, I think she. we all found it pretty difficult. But she went back to work there because she was a literature teacher. So she went back to work part-time so that I could go to Ballarat to boarding school in fifth and sixth year. So, the yeah, the borders were scary. They were scary. And I think the thing is it's just that uh, dynamic of a town when you put so many teenage boys or young boys in a town, the population, everything's out of kilter and out of whack, you know. So it felt a little bit like a chain of abuse that went on. Abuse was coming from the church for the boys and the boys were then being hostile to the girls in town. There were also the local boys who hated the borders and there were just all sorts of groups, looking back, that were pretty tense.
0: And and that was invisible to you at the time, but is it your work as a social worker that's allowed you to have a clearer view of what might have been going on under the surface there?
1: Yeah. I mean, when I was writing Ash Mountain, I started off, you know, writing a book basically where I knew a lot of people might die in it and that you had a lot of borders. Um, And I didn't feel any sympathy for the borders at all. When I started writing it, you know, I felt like I was going to put some sacrificial people in there, which is a terrible thing to admit but when i was writing and researching the town and researching the school and not just not just assumption there's schools like that in scotland and towns like that in scotland that have suffered that same kind of blow i realized that if the boys were hostile, there was a really good reason for it. You know that toxic env- environment that they were living in, and they didn't have a home to go to home. You know, at night time they, they were going back to school. At least we were going back home. So I did really start feeling very sorry for the boarders, actually, and and also realising that you can't lump them all together. There were a lot of different, a lot of different boys there going through a lot of different experiences.
0: So you did a degree in Australia and met your husband and moved to Scotland with him and continued your studies in social work. Why did you want to do social work? Why did that attract you?
1: Well, I had never really had any idea at all what I might do. In fact, it didn't even seem to really bother me until I'd finished the degree. And I (laughs) thought, oh, hang on, I need to think now. And social work, there were a lot of reasons. I wanted to work with people who I liked, you know, and whose values didn't make me angry. I think I've always had I think growing up, one of the things in a big family was that we weren't really good at discussing politics and ideas, you know, because there were going to be so many differing ideas that any political dis- discussion was a little dangerous. So I was very, very naive. And it was when I when I came to Melbourne and uni and I got a job in the Traits Hall Council, actually, and it was there that I started to have a sense of social justice, I suppose, and to feel that, yeah, that was, uh, this is the kind of work uh, in the voluntary sector or in social work that I could imagine doing and feeling okay about. There wasn't anything else that was grabbing me and I would still do it now. I mean, it's still the choice that I would make. Uh, I like the fact that, you know, your colleagues were all at the same level as you and that you had proper camaraderie uh, and support with your colleagues. And it made me feel good, the job. I'm not altruistic. I like feeling good and helping people, if you can, even in a small way, does give me a buzz. So I enjoyed it.
0: So what was your first real job in social work once you got to Scotland?
1: So my first job was in Edinburgh. I got a job first off in London, actually, when I was down there as an admin worker in a housing association. And it was a hostel for ex-offenders, and they had about 50 different residents in this uh, hostel. And it was a really, somehow just thought they did a wonderful job. Like there's a lot of men there who'd been in this hostel, you know, for years and years and years, but it was a happy place. The staff were kind and they didn't see the crime so much in the pit pe- person, but the person. And I just, yeah, that was my very beginning where I thought, okay, yeah, that's definitely social work that I want to get into. And after that I got a job in Edinburgh because of that. I'd fallen in love with Serge, wanted to move to Scotland and I got in jo- a job in Edinburgh... At a hostel again, but I didn't realise how different it was going to be. It was high-risk offenders, very high-risk offenders who were coming out on from long-term sentences and they were on parole, and they had to stay in this house for a year. So it was a condition of their parole. So it felt like a bit more like a prison guard, but I, I was alone in the house with you know, seven or eight offenders who, all of whom were very dangerous. What kind of offenders are we talking about? There were, at the time, right, it wouldn't happen again. I don't think that they would have a mix like this, but there were serious sex offenders, there were big drug gangsters, and uh, you know, it was really badly managed, I have to say at the time, because there were also women in the same unit sometimes as these, as sex offenders oh and God. so forth. And it was, it was a terrifying, horrible job. I've never been so afraid. And it really put me off Edinburgh because Edinburgh is so beautiful and so stunning. And I thought, this is where I want to live. I'm going to entice Serge. He was working at the BBC in Glasgow, but I, my intention was I'm going to entice him over to Edinburgh because on paper, what city, but this, um, unit really showed me just how how scary the crime world was at the time heroin use was you know, was huge and and it was just a really really dangerous place and the offenders, unlike when I met offenders in glasgow just were they weren 't funny for a start <laughs> and glasgow glaswegians are no matter what and um it just felt much more dangerous and so you know I would find people trying to hang themselves in their rooms and there were sex offenders trying to convince me to get in touch with their kids and I was all a little out of control. I know that they've worked it out, it's a lot better now, but it was out of control at the time and I left I left soon after and did the degree, the Social Work um, Masters at Glasgow.
0: I remember Edinburgh quite well from that, that time. i spent a lot of time there over many years and I remember that Edinburgh in the 80s and early 90s, there was in a... Edinburgh, that was beautiful and touristy, where the festival was and arty as hell, and and then there was outer Edinburgh, the Edinburgh mm-hmm. of the housing estates. And the story I heard while I was there was that some very enterprising people came there sometime in the nineteen eighties and got a whole bunch of people into heroin and turned it into a And heroin just kind of went through that those housing estates. Mm. Was that what happened pretty <laughs> much?
1: Yeah, and I if, if you've seen train spotting, I think you know it was that time too. It was just it was visi- visible poverty and deprivation like I had never seen before. You know, I had been. Thinking thinking of, you know, doing something social worky or, you know, voluntary and going to a developing country. And when I saw what was going on in Edinburgh and Glasgow, I thought I really don't need to travel to, to do that kind of work. There's so much going on here. It was just after Thatcher. It was still a Tory government. In fact, I think it's going to be forever <laughs> Tory government. You know, the the houses that I was going into, people's floorboards were taken up so that they could use them for fuel really, really awful living conditions. And so many people just hooked on heroin. And, and the thing about heroin and even methadone, if people managed then to get on methadone, it just seemed a forever thing. Once it started with you or your family, it was just waiting around until you died. You know, it was that crushing hopelessness. And, and I'd never seen anything like that. I'd never seen boarded up houses and streets with no signs and in the poorer areas, there's no, there was no pedestrian crossings, for example, and people, you know, there was the, it was just different rules for these poorer places.
0: How is historic Edinburgh different from industrial Glasgow in this respect?
1: I think in Edinburgh they say it's like a fried egg, you know, with the rich centre, like you said, and the, and the rest outside. And I think it's been always a policy to, you know, keep the rich people in the centre and keep poorer people out. Whereas in Glasgow, they say it's a scrambled egg. And I realised I was much more comfortable with a scrambled egg, with a social mix, you know. And uh, very soon after that, I moved back over to Glasgow. I moved over to Glasgow.
0: Glasgow, as you say, um, Mm -hmm. has got more of the mix there. You were working in the famous Gorbals district of Glasgow, which is actually quite close to the centre. What did the Gorbals look like at that time?
1: So the Gorbals had a lot of the high rises of, been demolished now actually since then but it was mostly high-rises. My husband's family actually started off in the Gorbals. It was that inner city area probably a little bit like Richmond or something in North Melbourne in, in Melbourne where you know the sort of first communities coming over started. So you know years ago it was the Italian community and it was a big Italian community in the Gorbals and my husband's Father and grandfather had a chip shop in the Gorbals and a flat there. And in those days that they had tenement flats, you know, which are actually nice buildings, but they had become so, you know, they were really in disrepair. There wasn't, you know, bathrooms. And so a lot of those tenements were, had been taken down and the high rises had been built the community wise it was a nice place. I mean, I really liked the people of the Gorbals. I even joined the local netball team, and we were really rough, but we always you know we smoked at half time and stuff, but we won you know it was a mix of really visible, ugly poverty, you know I mean, walking through in between those high rise flats i remember I remember specifically coming back from trips to Australia in the summer and then being walking in between these high rises in the gobbles with a whistling wind you know going on a home visit in the dark of winter there thinking oh my god this is a really it's a sad place and doing home visits that were on the 17th floor, and going up to the top and feeling the building sway in the wind. In fact, that to me is one of the most disconcerting feelings I have ever had. And I don't know how people live in buildings that sway in the wind, but these buildings did actually sway in the wind. It was confronting. I found it really difficult, but it was probably, you know, the, the making of me. I think once you've done job like working in the garbles, Um, you could probably do anything after that this is
0: conversations with Richard Feidler
1: on air online and on the ABC listen app
0: you can subscribe to the conversations podcast to find out more head to abc.net.au slash conversations. When you took the job on there at Balini Prison, Helen, what was the nature of your work? What did they want you to do?
1: So there was a social work unit within Barlini. You would go into, you know, in through the prison and then into the main prison and there's like a big quadrangle and there were five halls, A Hall, B Hall, all the way up to E Hall and a sort of an old house, it looked like an old house and that was the social work unit. And um, the social work unit, we would basically be recommend, you know, doing parole reports. Um, so if somebody's about to be released on parole, we would do big interviews with with that um, offender and, and recommend whether or not it was safe for them to be released. And if they were going to be released, what kind of conditions should be on their licence, like conditions to live in a certain spot, to not have contact with certain people. The, actually, the conditions that you could put on and recommend to the parole board, there's a lot of them and there's even more now. But as well as that, we would be supporting vulnerable prisoners. So every day someone was on duty, you would get notes from the hall from prisoners saying, I need to see a social worker because my... Ex-wife is, there, was, there were a lot of men who had crazy ex-wives and, or I want to see a social worker because I'm feeling suicidal or, or whatever. So you would go over to the prison uh, and talk to those people in a cell on the, on the ground floor and also get people ready for release. And that always involved meetings with an outside social worker, often with police, a parole board, with, um, and with the officers who had been, you know, spending a lot of time with these guys and maybe doing... You know, different programs with them throughout their um, sentence. So it was actually, it was actually a lot simpler and easier job than working in the community, where you were doing the sort of much more varied work, and the pace of it was just relentless. So it was actually a, it was a bit of a rest for me going in there. Really? And also, <laughs> I was yeah, oh, definitely quieter. And you became very quickly institutionalised yourself. I remember, you know, being terrified and in awe when I started, you know, I was like, oh my God, I'm in Bellini, which is the big hoose, they call it in Scotland. It's the big hoose in Glasgow. And I remember walking, you know, along the quadrangle, you know, where I was saying all those big halls are sort of Victorian stone buildings, very ominous looking. And I'm walking along and, the, and coming towards me, there's about 20 prisoners in their red polo shirts probably heading over to work, to the workplace for the day or whatever. And I was so terrified and upset uh, that just because I was sort of expecting, you know, boisterousness, even a whistling. I never got whistled at once in the prison. There was none of that. And and I felt like the, it was surprising to me how dehumanised um, these guys were. And they were just getting on with it. Nobody was even looking at them and, I went home that night and cried my eyes out and thought, this is just the most despairing place I've ever been. Cut to maybe a week later and I was just completely oblivious, didn't even see them, you know, got on with my job, wasn't upset. So it was very quick to become normal, you know. Um, It was a really, it's a very famous prison, you know. We'd had some of the big, at that time, some of the big gangsters who I'd heard about in in the Gorbals and knew about. In fact, had done sort of work... With families that I knew about who were in, you know, so Jimmy Boyle had just been in um, in prison before I before I got there, and he was a big gangster. And there was a special unit at the time, um, which is now this was the sex offenders unit when I went there, but a few years prior, it had been a real sort of experiment in rehabilitation where knives, for example, were allowed. You know, it was fair; it was like a house for people. And Jimmy Boyle, this famous gangster, had been there. Um, And while he was there, he fell in love with his psychotherapist and became a writer and sculptor. And now he lives, you know, somewhere sunny. (laughs) So there was all these famous stories. Um, So I was in awe and overwhelmed when I got there and just very quickly became used to it. Right. You stopped being frightened of those people? Yeah, I did. The only time I've really been frightened has been drunk women in the community. So, you know, actually in prison, everybody it's safe, safer than what I had been doing in the Gorbals, where you would be going and knocking on someone's door by yourself and, you know, their dog would jump on you and then you'd have to make your way into the house and, and you know, check out. what Because you're kind of a spy, really, when you're a social worker. The difficult thing at Barlini was the officers. You know, they didn't like social workers. They thought we were an Abby What are you doing here? We're being all nice to the to the guys. Um, and they were the ones I had confrontations with. In fact, I left the job after telling one of them to F off. <laughs> so I thought, right, I better leave now. It's probably on camera. <laughs> <You know? laughs> what, what would happen if violence
0: broke out? Were you ever around when that happened?
1: Oh, yeah. Um, well, you could hear it, actually, because when some, when there was an incident and somebody, somebody would press uh, an alarm... That would go off to all of the officers in the vicinity and, and the action was that they just had to run to that spot. And they were all pretty unfit and fat, really, the guys in Balini. And, uh, so from our little office, I would look out the window and see, before, the, but well, the first I would hear keys jangling. So the whole, it was like the whole prison jangled with keys because all these guys were running with their keys towards, towards the violent incident. I mean, and there were always suicides too, which was just one of the saddest and hardest things to deal with. Um, And in the Remand Hall, which was Sea Hall, um, it's one of those Victorian prisons. You know, so you walk in, there's a big open sort of atrium area and there's balconies around the sides, first floor, second floor, third floor. In the Remand Hall, where prisoners haven't been convicted yet, so they're waiting on their trial or they've been recalled to prison and waiting to see whether they're back in, That's where, you know, the most action happened because people were, you know, quite often coming off drugs, having mental health problems, just settling into prison. But also it was just a really difficult time for prisoners when they're waiting for their cases to go to court. So suicides were really high in that hall. So they had put a net over the first floor balcony, sort of covering. So as you looked up on the first floor, you you know, there's a net above you. And that was to catch people who threw themselves off the, the top floor what would happen
0: when someone died in the prison? Were their deaths commemorated?
1: The well, yeah, sort of. So the only time I remember that, well, I remember seeing one of the halls. They said it's locked down because somebody has died, so the hall's shut. And then a black van would be let, you know, it was a coroner's van. This black van would come into the prison and sort of park out the front of the door of the hall. And from the social work office, I could hear this banging and what it was was as they took the body out of the hall, all of the men would bang on their on their doors or whatever it was. Yeah, they were doors. would just start banging these metal doors and it's boom, 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 boom. Oh, my God. That was the most sad and moving thing, actually.
0: When you had to sit down and talk to some of these inmates, what surprised you about them when you were doing your job?
1: Um, what, how much they told me. I, yeah, I, I think if... I mean, you doing this interview with me now, I'm telling you a lot. But, you know, imagine if you were asking me, like, the things I was asking people to tell me, and they would, was just really shocking. With sex offenders, for example, you know, when we when we did risk assessments, you know, you would be asking and things like that, very, very private things that, you know, I'm not used to talking about and find very uncomfortable. But, you know, those were the risk assessments that we had to do. And it always surprised me how much men told me, I think women with social workers tended to be a lot harder to engage with because of child protection. They knew that if they told you too much, you know, there was there was a danger that, um, you know, social work getting involved could mean losing your children, you know. So it was different working with men from working with women. But the stories I got told, you know, I was saying how I'd go over and someone would say, I just want to see a social worker. He would work, walk in just not knowing what they were going to say. And some of the things people told me were amazing. One, we didn't want to talk about his dad when I was asking. I knew doing a court report that when people don't sort of skate over things, you know, try and find a way, way to get back to there, you know, get because there's obviously something that he's holding back. And eventually this guy said, okay, my dad is a notorious uh, serial killer, And um, I, poor guy, it was a driving offence. It was absolutely unrelated to anything to do with serial killing that I was doing the report. But, you know, I was able to sit and talk to him for an hour about his dad and to hear things that, you know, I didn't feel like other people had heard. And it was really shocking. I remember thinking probably that guy started me thinking about writing because I thought, oh, a son of a serial killer would be an interesting person to explore in a story.
0: What When... um. You'd go in to meet a prisoner and I'm imagining at times they just sort of explode with anger just to, I don't know, for an effect or because they were genuinely angry or something. How, how do you deal with that? I'm sure you know all about it. Those guys know, many of them know how to be very intimidating people. How do you deal with uh, when a prisoner is shouting abuse at you?
1: So I think I learned uh, I learned how to deal with that. At the start, I was really, really bad. As a student social worker, I remember going to do my very first meeting with a prisoner who was... Going to be released on parole, he had said that he was going to go and stay at his mum's house. And I had this sort of mad professor, lovely, clever practice teacher, Kevin, absolutely loved him. He was mad as, uh, you know, as mad as anything, but I loved him. And he said, Radio, you take this interview. We just want to know, you know, what his intentions are. He's going to his mum's, blah, blah, blah. So I go in, sit down, and I say to this guy, So, you know, he gonna, when you get out, you're going to go to your mum's. And he said, When I get out, I'm going to find my mother, and I'm going to slit her throat. And I said, "Okie, dokey. And I remember my practice teacher said, "I'll take over from here, Helen. You know afterwards he was very sweet. He said, okie dokey probably isn't the best response <laughs> to that kind of thing. No, so I think um, you know I, I learned from colleagues and, for, and and with time how to deal with that. and but by the time I was working in Paisley like two years ago, and I went to a prison, I, to do usually to do court reports, you know they're about to go to court, so I would be recommending whether or not they should get custody or a non-custodial option. A guy, the guy walked in. I remember one particular guy walking in to the agents' area. You know, I've got a desk. He comes in, sits opposite me. I do the interview, and the guy walks in. You know, it's just anger oozing out of him. And by the time I got to the end of, you know, 10 years, of 20 years social work, when I saw a guy like that, I thought, oh, good, I've got something to work with here. And they would always end up being the ones that I had the best relationship with and that I actually had some impact on. So, you know, for example, the guy I'm talking about, and it was just about seeing how he felt and acknowledging it and and starting from, from a different place. I think I used to just say... You know, how are you? What did you have to eat today? Have you got your medication? You know, some care, some questions that actually demonstrate some kindness. And if I could demonstrate kindness, that that anger just went away. I mean, this guy I'm talking about, 15 minutes later, is crying his eyes out and telling me things he's never told. It wasn't because I was a genius. It's just actually the first person in years, perhaps, to have asked him how he was and to actually want to know. You know,
0: a great many people in that prison would be there because of poverty, um, abuse, all sorts of things like that. But there would also be people you're looking at who are honest-to-God psychopaths who have no empathy but are good at impersonating human beings or telling lies or being quite clever at creating that impersonation of an empathic human being. Did you have to get good at spotting that? Are you any good at spotting that? Is, are, they easy to, are such people easy to spot in the kind of um. work you were doing?
1: I think I got better at it. I think, yeah, no, I'm not great at it. And I think because people who, you know, there were a couple of guys I I met who were, I would say, just really bad. There's only a couple that I would say, having met hundreds, who I thought were psychopaths and they didn't have empathy and... I found, with those two, very easy to spot. It was very clear. You know, they they just did not see, you know, any wrong in the murders and rapes that they had committed and, and their attitude towards me and towards the victim was very clearly lacking in any empathy or remorse. But I only met... A few people like that, I'd say two, you know, um, a lot of my colleagues, probably some of them were working in different areas and were working with higher risk people like that all the time. But thankfully, not too many. Um, And I found those guys really difficult to work with and really all, all you managed to do in the end was police them. So I had a sex offender, for example, who is dead now, but it was just about policing. He had no empathy. He wasn't going to change. If he had an opportunity again, he would be taking it. So the conditions on his licence were just so strict. He wasn't allowed to have a dog. Um, and these are things oh. that I had worked out, you know, with my police colleagues and with the parole board, you know, that we think this is what needs to happen. No internet or if they have the internet that we would go in and check their devices. We'd look around for pen drives, you know. It was a lot of spying with those dangerous guys and a lot of policing. And I, you know, sometimes with some people, that's all you can do.
0: You're going in with an Australian accent now. My experience in Scotland is that, weirdly enough, Australians are very popular in Scotland by and large. Did that work for you, or is it the same in a in a in a Glasgow prison as it is at the Edinburgh fringe? What <laughs> yeah. do you find? You were liked as an Australian in those circumstances? Oh, absolutely,
1: hundred percent. I think um, there's a classlessness about the Australian accent in Scotland. They can't figure out, you know, how much money I've had, <laughs> how much privilege I've had, or or whatever. I'm not English. And that's good. And I think also I didn't really understand in Edinburgh with those scary offenders I was working with in the hostel, I didn't really understand a lot of what they were saying and I think that was probably good (laughs) So at the time. And they used to call me the mad kangaroo in Edinburgh. (laughs) People have aunties that they want to talk about in Perth all the time. (laughs) What were you
0: like when you got home after an insane day at the prison?
1: So I would get home quite manic and um, I'm sitting at the table. We've always talked a lot about murder and crime in our family because we're writers as well. So dinner table conversation's always a little bit odd. But sometimes I'll be, oh, my God, this has happened and this has happened, you know, and uh, oh, my, my job is so amazing and so interesting in a little bit of a manic way. And I remember my son, who's very sensible, and he was about 15 at the time, said, Mum, you don't look excited about this. You just look upset. And I thought, oh my God, I am. That is, that's, it is upsetting. I think you do jobs like that for, you know, and you don't want to admit that it's upsetting anymore. You just, I'm tough. I can cope with it. This is how it is. It's quite. There's a lot of buzz in the job, a lot of excitement. Um, and so, yeah, I never wanted to to admit that. But I think it did really upset me. You know, and when you get home as well, especially working in the community. What was harder about that was you always had your 30 cases and you'd know that, you know, they were in their houses and that they, had, they could be up to all sorts. And if, if something happens, you know, it might be my fault. So that, there was a lot more responsibility and I always took that home with me, definitely. And Balini, that's why it was easier. You'd leave and you knew that they were pretty much safe, you know, and that their victims were safe, potential victims.
0: I was talking about your work with my producer, Nicola, and her view was that social workers like you who do the hardest jobs in the in dangerous prisons, the deal ought to be that you do the year in the hard, hard, hard Knox prison, and then the government pays for you to have a year in Tuscany to recharge your batteries.
1: <laughs> I think that's an excellent, excellent it's idea. <laughs> I I actually really do. I mean, without the money for Tuscany, you think that it's a job you should only do for a little while. A bit like marriage. Yeah. Like you should have five years and five years out, five years, five years out. And I think the difficulty in social work is that there are no interesting, safe, easy jobs, really. There's no way to have a break from that kind of pressure that you're under. And unless you go up the way and you become a a manager and that is like in any other business boring stuff paperwork meetings you're not actually doing any of the fun thing so in social work there's nowhere to go there's you know and i really do feel that it should be that 5 years people People lose the will to live. They're not as good at it after that. And I really do feel they should move us around. I asked for a year off in Barlini because I didn't want to leave, but I had a book tour for my very first book in Australia, and they said no. And that was a real shame because I've I've never really wanted to leave. I've wanted to try and balance the two, but it's just been hard to do.
0: Harrowing as the work is, is it addictive?
1: Absolutely, and especially... Uh, you know, when you get those higher risk cases and the and the child protection workers. In the last office I worked in in Paisley, which I really loved, it was a big open plan office. And at one end, you had the child protection workers, buggies all around the place. They're in and out, they're in and out. And at our end, you would have criminal justice. So it was basically naught to 16 um, clients at one end. And then when they t- turned 16 and these kids have been through hell and been through care and all of that, Quite a lot of them, very sadly, they're sort of punted over to the criminal justice system because they're now getting in and out of jail. And it, it was, um, yeah, it was like a... We stopped caring about people a bit, you know, when they become adults. And we had so much sympathy for a client who you might have known since they were born, you know, since they were taken into care and had foster care and their such and such died and all these tragedies that you know about them. And then you end up with that person on probation and it's all about punishment, you know, and that sort of ethos changed.
0: I know for many police officers, the nature of the work. Can alienate them, It very often alienates them from straight life or the straight world, as they might want to call it, or normal life, or amongst normal normal people. It's there. And they can, mm. I you know a friend is it when it's the police force, and they can they can develop a view that that we are sort of innocents and we don't really know about what how the world really is, and they're kind of there to protect us so we can live in our little bubble, so that and they have to live in this terrible place so that we can live in the nice place or something, um, which isn't quite right actually. But but do you? is it like that for social workers as well? Is it hard to uh, associate and socialise with quote unquote normal people or regular people who have jobs that are not as dramatic and as intense as yours?
1: It is actually. My daughter has just started working so similarly to me with uh, in homeless hostels in Glasgow through uh, the pandemic and I can see from her that she's having the most incredible days, you know, where the the most stressful things are happening. And in the very start of it, she was wanting to unload. She was, oh, my God, oh, my God, oh, my God. And then very quickly, you just stop talking about it to people because people, there's no satisfaction in it. People don't don't get it. It's like, uh, so I think that's why colleagues are so important because actually, yeah, talking about your work and having someone actually understand what kind of day you might have just had don't think people can understand that. And I think that as a social worker, when you see poverty like you see and deprivation like you see all the time, it can also be hard seeing people have so much privilege, you know, and in yourself as well, the discomfort with it. You don't, I'm kind of getting into a bit of a middle class bubble again, and I'm feeling like I need to go back to social work. You know, I'm not, I've lost touch with what's really going on in this city. Given that you
0: grew up in a family of 13 kids who are all living in the house at different stages, admittedly, nonetheless, a a place where you're sort of all living in these tiny compartmentalised lives in a very, very finite space... That's kind of like a happy prison or not a prison or, or I don't know, is, is there any similarity there, is there or is it kind of the absolute opposite of what a prison is when you're living in a happy house, but one where there's no room, there's no room in the car, there's no room around the table. Are there any correlations or major differences there that you can see? Hey.
1: Actually, I've never thought about that. I think probably, you know, I was thinking about, you know, the prisoners being dubbed up, they would call call it. Each cell, had, you had two people in it, you know, in a bunk and a and a desk and a television, and they would call the other person your co-pilot and you would say you were dubbed up, but you doubled up with somebody. Sort of, I felt like I had a co-pilot in my bedroom and my little sister, Rhea. You know, we were always in, in a bunk bed together and people did get moved around bedroom-wise and I guess the organisation, of our household was similar because it had to be. You had to have a lot of meal preparation. People, you know, it had to be organised and everybody had to play a role. So, um, I guess that's different from the prison. But yeah, we, it was it was military, I suppose, going back to that.
0: You've been working in this, these kind of, I don't know how to say terrible places, but places where you see some horrifying things at times. But you actually do sound like a very uncynical person to me. You sound really quite, quite upbeat and, and a generally happy person. Am I right? Are, are, have I got this right about you, Helen?
1: I think if I am, then it's, you know, I've had a really great uh, partner and family life. And also the social work in Glasgow... Is upbeat actually. Strangely, from everything I've said, the social work officers that I work in, my colleagues, are lovely and funny. And actually, so are the offenders. Uh, they're funny and they're nice and they're lovely and they're good people apart from certain elements, mostly, you know, that, and there are good reasons why those things have happened. So um, I love this city. I love Glasgow. And I think you know, from the beginning when I moved here, it was a very Everyone said, oh, my God, what are you doing in Glasgow? But it's just a really friendly place. And I think that the thing is, no matter what job you're in, what matters to a Glaswegian is your chat. Have you got a joke to tell me? You know, if I said to someone, oh, guess what? I've been talking on, you know, they'd say, "Uh uh-huh, what's the punchline? You know, (laughs) you don't brag, you tell a joke. And, you know, comedy and, and chat and banter is the currency. So I think Glasgow's kept me like that too and my family
0: i love glasgow glasgow is a such a fun town and uh yeah i i know exactly what you mean helen it's uh, been amazing speaking with you and thank you so much
1: thank you so much that was great richard you've been listening to a podcast of conversations with richard feidler For more Conversations interviews, please go to the website abc.net.au slash conversations. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.